Welcome to Seize Your Mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. Today's guest is Coach Charlie Mitchell. Charlie played in Scotland, where he's originally for St. Mervyn FC, and then in the NASL, he played with Rochester Lancers, New York Cosmos with Pele, Team Hawaii. In 78, he played for the Tulsa Roughnecks in the Toronto Blizzard, and then as a coach for Team Hawaii, the Tulsa Roughnecks in 80 and 81, 81's the year that I was born, and uh, for Northeastern State University for nine years, where I actually played for Charlie in 2004, I believe, yes, 2004, for a semester, short stint there. How are you, Charlie? We're doing great, thank you, and thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to with you. Looking forward to it. And by the way, I like your shirt. Thank you, thank shirt you. Shirt you on there. I wore it specially for you. Okay, well, we appreciate it. All right, Charlie, take me back to the beginning. How did you get involved in soccer as a kid? Well, I mean, with being born in Scotland, you know, I'd say when you become four or five years of age, you just start kicking a tennis ball around around the house, and then when you get number six or seven. You get a couple of your pals and you go out on the street and you put two jackets down and the jackets are the goals and the, the, the and then you just go and just play against each other. And we used to play with a tennis ball and even had a tennis ball, throw it up, hit it off the wall. So basically my younger days, five through eight, I played all my soccer on the street. Okay, who was your idol growing up? Did you have a role model? Yeah, those two big role models that uh, in Scotland, there was a guy called Dennis Law, who played for Manchester United, who was a Scottish international player. And uh, he was just a robust, fiery guy who could, you know, just, I love this style of play. So I, that, he was my first hero. And there's another, another player called Jim Baxter. Jim Baxter played for Glasgow Rangers. And he was a finesse player. And he, I was left-footed and he was left-footed. And he was the first guy to wear his shirt outside his, his pants just to be cool, so I for the years I used to wear my shirt outside the pants and it was kind of untidy, but they just made it look, uh, look cool as far as I was concerned. That's great, that's great. So uh, when was your first like official game in a field? Uh, my first game, we uh, in Scotland, obviously, you try to make it the, the school boys, so it's called primary school, which is basically uh, the youngsters' school. So eight years of age, I, I played for the school team. Eight through twelve, got us through the primary school. So uh, all my soccer at the young days at that age was all through through the school. Would play every other school in the, in, in the town. I came from a town of Paisley, and there was about 12, 12 schools there. So yeah, each age group played against each age group on a Saturday morning. Uh, every Saturday morning, you went and played soccer. And, and, the, and the, if you can interest, is it? When we played there, there was 20, 20 fields on this one. So all the kids at all the same age group would go up there and you'd see all your pals playing in different fields. It was, uh, it was, called, it was called 20 pitches, which means there were 20 pitches all over in, in our 
recreation in our town. And then did you go to college after that and play in college or did you go straight to professional? No, then, no, then I had to go to high school, like basically high school. And you go through high school from 12 through 16. And that's where the soccer get real serious and because you're getting bigger and stronger. Tackles were getting better. So I went all the way through to uh, uh, played in school. And I was very lucky that I was uh, in a very good team. And we won a couple of trophies all the way through till I was uh, 16 years of age. And then when I was 16, the, the school team, we didn't have a, I played for the church as well, but that was just more rec stuff. The, the school programs were really competitive. And when we were 16, the, a lot of scouts would come and see us from different, you know, different teams. And we were very successful. My high school team, we'll call it our senior year, we won all the trophies. So we had a lot of scouts come and take a, take a look at us. And myself and seven other players were very fortunate that after that year, when we were 17, we signed professional contracts. At 17 years old. We weren't allowed to get paid for the first two years. So we're what's called amateur forms. We were on, a, I was on an amateur form. So your, your listeners might be interested in that. It's a little bit of a deal where you think you've made the big time. <laughs> Not really, because when you're a, a, what we call an apprentice, an amateur apprentice, we had to clean out the dressing room. We had to polish the boots of the senior players. And it was just one of these deals. It was more of a, a learning program. Uh, one time we had to paint the seats in the stands. We had to go up there and paint the seats. So the glamour for me wasn't what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> if you want to be a senior player, and you worked hard to be a senior player, so... I think that was going to go of the coaches and the trainers is to get you, not let you get too carried away and let your head get too big. So I never played in the senior team until I was uh, 18 and a half and 19. Were you always a defender? Uh, no, I used to play left midfield for a while. And then I played center half. Center. Uh, then they became a center back, started to be like six feet, six feet one, six feet two. I was 5'10", so I wasn't tall enough to win all the, the balls in the middle with the head, basically. And then with being a national left footer, uh, the coach found a left, left back position. And, uh, and that just suited me fine because I like to go forward uh, at the same time as I could defend. So uh, the left fullback, the number three position, was uh, just suited me fine. So um, it worked out good for me. And then once you played your 18 and a half, Tell me about that first game where you're like actually in the big, playing with the big dogs. I can still remember walking up the tunnel. Uh, I was playing with St. Martin, which is a local team, and they would get something like uh, 20, 25,000 people to get every game. So uh, walking up that tunnel was a, a big, big, big thrill. You know, my heart was pounding, and I kept saying, just be cool, just be cool. But, uh, but there's nothing that prepares you for something like that. It's always just uh, you, you, th you think you want to be cool, you want to calm down, but uh, it just, it's just not possible. Your heart's pumping and you just want to play good. You don't want to disappoint. One of the things that was really tough for, for me and maybe a couple other players, you play for your hometown, then a lot of people come and see you that played with you as a kid or knew you pretty good. So you were, it was kind of tough. It was probably a bad decision to sign for the hometown because you were kind of, uh, oh, I used to play with him. I was a better player than him. I, I played against him and I kicked him one time. So it, being a local boy, it was kind of hard. But 
uh, it was a good lesson to be learned. You, you were you were in the public eye. That's fun. So, um, when did you start with St. Mirren FC? Yeah, St. Mirren FC. That, that's when, that was my first professional team to play with, and that was our local uh, professional team. They played in the Scottish First Division, so we got an opportunity to play against Celtic and Rangers and Kilmarnock and Park Thistle. So, it was just great to travel on the bus and, uh, and, and be just be part of an organization like that. The, what, what people don't realize that the competition was so stiff that even if you were hurt, you played hurt. You, if you lost your position in your team, somebody was just breathing right down your neck to take it over. And then if they played good, then you'd be sitting. And we didn't have a bench. I, I hate to think of it. There was no bench at that time. There was 11, 11 players and a one substitute. So uh, it's not like uh, you could sit on the bench. You were at, if you didn't play, then you had to go play with a reserve team. And that was like a, a little kick in the pants. Like, I had to step down. Nobody wanted to go play with the reserve team. Even the word I don't like, reserve team. So, so I, it was a it was a great a great process. And I played with a lot of good players. So I was lucky that, that they uh, they helped me get through it. Uh, how did you uh, come? How did you come over to the U.S.? What was that process like? And what made that was, you? That was an interesting story. Uh, I was one of the younger players on the team at, at 19 years of age. And they had a couple of scouts came over from America and wanted to take some younger players to play in the off-season. And the off-season in Scotland was basically the, the summer over here was the off-season over there. So me and, uh, and three other players got an opportunity to come over and play in the United States. And it was uh, and when I came to, to Rochester, it was, a, it was a great experience. Well, the player that I was coming with, he chickened out and decided not to come. Well, when you come to Rochester, they gave us a car to share. But with him not coming, I had a little uh, Mustang. And here's me driving a Mustang in Rochester, New York. Uh, and, you know, and, and the soccer, in, in all fairness, was easier. The, the, the standard wasn't as good. So it made, made players like myself look better. So <laughs> it was, it was kind of what we used to call it easy to peasy, you know. To come to America, so it was a, it was a great, and I played for Rochester for for that season, and then went back home uh, to Scotland, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I went back home to Scotland, and and I was telling all the players, oh, it was great in America. They give you a car, you know, they give you an apartment, and I was kind of bragging on it all the time, and uh, and and in Scotland at that time, you know, it was muddy. The fields were muddy. You know, it rained a lot. And I'd just come back from, you know, a summer in America. So I remember the coach telling me, Charlie, shut up and stop talking to all the players like that because you're making them all jealous. And I think I kind of pissed them off. So uh, Rochester called up and offered to, buy, offered to buy my contract. And I was single and, 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 and got a chance to go back and play in America where it was easy to peasy in my, in my mind. And, and I thought, hey, why, why not just take the risk? So... I went back home and played in Rochester in 1970, and they made me captain of the team, and we won the North American Soccer League title in 1970 with Rochester Lancers. With your with your shirt out of your out of your pants, with your jersey out of your out of your shirt. Sure, I'm cool. They didn't know anything about Jim Baxter. I was the only one that knew about Jim Baxter, so I just wanted to play and look like him a little bit. That's great. Then you go to New York Cosmos. 
Yeah, that was a great experience. You know, I was uh, I had a couple of good seasons with Rochester. We played against New York quite a, a few times. Well, Pele came to New to New York in '75, so that was a big deal that he was getting all the publicity and so on and so forth. And uh, and then all of a sudden, the coach called me. This is 1976. The the, the general manager called me up and said, uh, "New York Cosmos has made an offer for you to come and play in New York." That took me about two seconds to say, I, I'm in. I'm in. Let's do the deal. And since we're talking about it, you, the, the, it's quite an experience because uh, New York was owned by Warner Brothers, Warner's Communication. That's the Warner Brothers movie people. So I had to go sign my contract down in New York in the, in the Warner Brother bill. I, uh, as I get in the elevator to go up the, up the, to the Warner Brothers Warner Communications office, Robert Redford was standing in the elevator. And he said to me, are you one of these soccer players? And, and I, obviously my accent was a little stronger at that time. And I said, yes, I am. And he started telling me how his son was playing soccer and he thought it was a great sport. And he said, and he said well, good luck to you. And I said, well, thanks very much. And that was my, my first experience in New York City in an elevator with Robert Redford. And then, and then, and then we go for lunch and Rod Stewart sitting in the restaurant at Warner Brothers. So I, I, I think I've, I've, I've hit, the, hit the lotto. I've hit the lotto. So I uh, signed my contract and then uh, moved to New York. And obviously Pelly was there. Then the same Giorgio Canaglia. And he was a big star at that time as well. So the, we were just the kind of, we were the traveling party. Pelly and Canaglia were the, the one that drew the, got all the publicity. But it was just great to be in that, that environment and, and playing with so many good players. Tell me about what it was like playing with Pele, the king, the number one best soccer player in the world ever. But, you know, Pele at that time was ending, the, you know, he ended his career in 1977. And I'm telling you, he, he trained as hard as everybody. He worked hard. He didn't look for any, he, he, was, he wasn't a superstar amongst with the players. He traveled and coached with us in the plane. He, uh, I, 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 here's a good story for you. Uh, Brandon is, we're all on the, we finished the game and we're all sitting on the bus and we're waiting for Pelly because he was getting interviewed by everybody and anybody would, he would talk to. And he probably held the bus up for about 10 or 15 minutes. And he come on the bus and he looked at everybody and says, I apologize. I apologize for keeping everybody late, but I'm here to promote soccer in the United States. And uh, I hope you all understand. So I am sorry. He used to say, sorry, boys, sorry, boys. So, uh, and his English was pretty good. We used to kid him on. When he was talking to women, his English was real good. And when he was talking to the, to the reporters, his English wasn't so good. So uh, you could turn it on and turn it off. That's great. I didn't know that about Taylor. Um, what's the biggest thing that you noticed about him that was like, that made him stand apart? Was it his work ethic? Was it just naturally talented? Was it his mindset? He, he, he was just a, he could control a ball. I, mean, I remember one time that a goalkeeper, a goalkeeper punted the ball out and I was right behind him. He punted the ball out and the ball was coming. I thought he was going to hit it. And he just put out his foot that dropped dead right on his foot. I mean, he was, it, it was so many different things. Pelly could have played, played defender. He could have played goalkeeper. 
he could have played any position because that's how good he was. You know, he could defend. I mean, in his day, if you go back and look at, he would chase people back again and tackle them and stuff like that. So he had a he had a little knack for everything. Uh, it was really a it was just great to be around. And like I said, his personality was one of the players. You know, he, he wasn't looking acting like a big shot or nothing like that. He was just he was a real deal. Uh, I, I don't know if you. If you want to do some research, but you can go on YouTube and they probably did a bicycle kick at Cosmos against Fort Lauderdale at Yankee Stadium. And it shows me crossing the ball. And I assisted in Pelly's only bicycle kick uh, at what it was in North America. And after the game in the dressing room, he came over and gave me his shirt and says, I've always wanted to do that in America, Charlie. Always wanted to do that bicycle kick. Thanks for sending the ball over. And I, and I used to kid people on since we're talking about it. I looked up and I saw Pelly and I thought I'd just chip it to Pelly to do the bicycle kick. But that's not the real story. I just crossed the ball and Pelly got on to the end of it. But mm-hmm. it's a little bit. I looked up and saw Pelly, but I'm not that good. I just crossed the ball and he, uh, so if any, any of your listeners are looking up on YouTube, Pelly's bicycle kick, I was wearing number 19. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I'm sure you remember that cross like it was yesterday. Oh, yeah. Well, my son's seen it a thousand times and my grandkids have seen it a thousand times. So uh, I brag about it because it's one of these things I don't like to – I'm not really a big bragger because you just get this position where – but when you cross the ball to Pelly and he, and he does a bicycle kick at Yankee Stadium against Fort Lauderdale, it gives me a little bit of bragging rights. Yeah, I can't think of anyone that I've ever spoke with that's done that before. So <laughs> it's pretty special. Well, was that? Well, yeah. Then, I mean, it's one of these things that, and, and fortunately, you know, now boy, that was in 1976. We we got it on tape, so there's no good saying talking about it. And you can't back it up, so it's on tape somewhere. All right. Um, so then you went to Hawaii. What was it like playing out there? That was another great experience. Uh, like I said, Cosmos were bringing in Franz Beckenbauer. They're bringing in Carlos Alberto. They, they, they were starting to bring in the 70, 77, bring in some really special players. So that put me on the bench. Well, uh, and, and I, you know, I'd never been on the bench when I came to America. So I wasn't really comfortable, even though the glamour and, and the traveling, if you're not playing, it's just not, it's just not the same. So there was a coach called Hubert Vogelsinger who was the coach of uh, Boston at that time, he got the he got the job over in Hawaii, which was owned by Frito-Lay. Frito-Lay owned the team over. They bought the team and took it to Hawaii. So uh, Singer always, he was a German coach. And when, all the time I played against Boston, I seemed to play pretty good. So he, he offered me and a guy called Brian Tinian, who was another New York Cosmo player, to come and play for him in Hawaii. And that was in a Aloha Stadium over in Hawaii, and uh, that was just, uh, you know, you talk about going from Rochester to New York, you think you've hit the big time, well, getting to Hawaii and playing professional soccer there, it was a, it was a kind of, a huge, huge, and we get good, good crowds over there, uh, the teams had to travel uh, over there, and they didn't like to travel to come and play one game in Hawaii, and when we played there, we had to come to the mainland. We had to play two or three games in the mainland because you couldn't fly back and forth. So it was a long haul, but it was a great experience. And uh, I was the captain of the team at that time. And it was, 
We had a lot of English players, a lot of a, a couple of Brazilian players, a couple of German players. We had we had a good good day, a good group of players. We 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 won quite a few games. Was and the it, was the field like right next to the water? No, the field was at Aloha Stadium. No, but it was the only stadium that had a had a what they also played baseball there, Brandon. So what actually they could do that they took the seating and the seating would move around. The seating could move around for a baseball game. And then the, then it was on the on big rollers. And then it would come back again and, and be square for a soccer game. So the people were looking at it just like a normal, uh, like on a normal field. It was a, it was kind of neat to play in that stadium, and, and uh, it was a great experience. A lot of traveling, a lot of traveling was involved in it. But uh, then unfortunately, uh, Hubert took ill, and you, once again, it's an interesting story. Uh, Hubert took ill and Ward Lay of Potato Chips called me up to his uh, his hotel room on an away trip and said, Hubert, Hubert Stick uh, would like you to take over the team. Well, I was uh, I was 20, 28 at that time. And I said, I'm not ready to take over a team. I just want to keep playing. I'm enjoying it. I said, but and this is an interesting story. I said, but if you let, if you get the players to back me up, with 10 games left in the season. And I said, if you let the players back me up and they all go for it, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And his words to me was something I learned. We don't ask them, we tell them. Do you or don't you want the job? And I thought to myself, well, if I don't take it, somebody else is going to take it and they don't know if they're going to like me. So I may as well just... <laughs> <laughs> So we played the we played and we made the playoffs, and uh, and we were playing against uh, George Best, and uh, that George Best was uh, with the Los Angeles Aztecs, and it was here's me coaching the team, playing against George Best, playing against Rodney Marsh in Tampa. It was once again I was I was way out of my element, but the players rallied around me and, and they ended up winning six of the last ten games. So it was a, a great experience. So how'd you end up in Tulsa? Well, then, and then the the franchise wasn't making it in uh, Hawaii because of the travel and it was too too expensive. So uh, they told us that the the franchise was up for sale, and uh, there's two people would come in. Cleveland, the town of Cleveland, come in to buy the transfer the franchise, or the town of Tulsa come in to buy the franchise. And I remember looking at the uh, looking at the map, and I saw where Cleveland was. And, and that was too far north for me because I was a. Uh, actually, all my freckles were joining together. I was actually getting a tan. It took me about 12 months to get a tan in Hawaii, but I was getting a tan. And I looked in Dallas. Dallas. I was familiar where Dallas was because we played Dallas Tomato all the time. And Tulsa was right next to Dallas, so I thought, oh, I, I might. Hey, that'll do me. So, fortunately, the the franchise was bought, and was brought to Tulsa. And if you do your homework, the, the coach was uh, a, a guy from Manchester United called Bill Folks, F-O-U-L-K-S. Well, Bill Folks to me was a, a hero because way back in the day, there was a big plane crash. Manchester United was in the plane crash. Bill Folks was one of the players in the plane crash. Really? And, and survived. So he was a big name in Manchester United. So he offered me to come to Tulsa and be his assistant coach and player. And once again, I landed on my feet, Brandon. I don't know how it happens all the time, but 
I landed on my feet, I landed in Tulsa, and uh, I've never regretted it ever since. The Tulsa people welcomed me. They were a great people to be around. Their soccer knowledge was limited, but they appreciated if you worked hard and you gave them a best honest effort. It was, uh, it was great. So I played in Tulsa in 19, uh, 1978 for Bill Folks. Now, that was the Busby Babes, right? That plane accident? You're right. You did your, that was the Busby Babes. That he was on that team. So I, I went to Manchester Stadium a couple years ago and did the tour. And so I got to see, like, the clock that stopped at the time the plane crashed. And... Okay, well, then you're familiar. That you, that's it. Your knowledge is really good. Yeah, that was a, that was a big deal. And supposedly Bill Folks was the one that pulled Matt Busby out of the plane. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, And he wouldn't talk about it, by the way. You know, he, he, I, I touched on it a couple of times, and he just said, I don't want to talk about it, Charlie. So it was just like uh, and a guy called Dennis Violet, who ended up coaching in America as well. He was on that plane. So the, uh, it was uh, kind of well, nice, nice for the history. So, but uh, he was a good guy and, and all the credentials. So I was happy to be his assistant and, and play for him. Okay, we're going to circle back around to Tulsa once we get – once we finish talking about Toronto, and uh, then we'll get into your coaching career. So you left Tulsa for Toronto? Yeah, what happened is Bill Folks got fired, right? And, and I didn't think that at the time – I thought it was uh, – me personally, I thought it was wrong. And I was, I was unhappy with that. Well, the captain of the New York Cosmos was a guy called Keith Eddy. Uh, he was a captain of the New York Cosmos. So he gets a head coaching job in Toronto for the Toronto Blizzard, which was owned by the, the television station. So he, uh, he called me up and said, hey, will you think I want to come to Toronto and be my assistant player coach? And I had a high respect for Keith because he was a really good player. He was English international. And, uh, and we were good friends. And I thought, why not take the opportunity? Because the, the coach had came to Tulsa at that time. I didn't know him. He didn't. And, it, you know, it'd just be a, an uphill battle. So I jumped at the chance to, uh, to go up there and play for him in Toronto. And we had a great season. And we made the playoffs. And first round of the playoffs was against New York Cosmos. And, and they knocked us out. So, uh, and that was a, a great year, good experience for me. Toronto was a great city, uh, good bunch of players. Once again, we mostly British players, a couple of Brazilian players, and a couple of Italian players. So it was a good mix of players uh, that up there. And we get great crowds. We played the, the, the stadium up there. It was, it was really uh, – but, you know, the opening day, the opening day, they had a snow blizzard on the opening day, and we had to play in the snow in the opening, day, opening season. And I was reminded by that by looking at one of the old uh, the old games. So great experience. Keith was good to play for. And and then at the end of the season, uh, we're sitting in the house and Noel Lemon, the general manager of the Tulsa, said, uh, we've let uh, Alan Hinton go. We're looking for a head coach. How would you like to come back to Tulsa? And that took two seconds as well. <laughs> we uh, Tulsa, was, the people were great, very friendly. In the, uh, I, I, give, I guess I could give you a good comparison here. Uh, is that in New York, you had to fight in the subway. You had to fight to get a seat. You know, everybody was really pushy. Well, in Tulsa, 
in New York, somebody say, I need to invite you for dinner and never invited you. Well, until someone somebody said, I'm going to invite you for dinner, the next thing you knew, they called up and they invited you. That was the difference between Tulsa and living up in New York. So Tulsa is a great town. Uh, people are friendly, great environment, great schools for the children. So it was a no-brainer for me to come here as a head coach. Now, you're considered one of the founding fathers of soccer in Tulsa. Um, I was just talking to the coach, Derek Larkin, and he said to tell you hi, by the way. Um, and he said you're like you and Victor, like huge role models when he was growing up. And you guys are like one of the reasons why soccer is what it is in Tulsa today. Yeah, well, we're really fortunate with a couple, a lot of good players, Billy Kasky, Victor Mullen, that they really went out in the community. And, and we did a lot of clinics. That was one of the things that, that we, we did a lot of when I became the head coach at Tulsa. We got the players involved in the community. And fortunately, with the British players and the players that we brought in all spoke English, so they could go out and work with the kids and, and do a lot of clinics. So we, we actually, Brandon, we, we did so many clinics. It was the kids who brought the parents to the game who had never seen the game before, didn't know what soccer was all about at Skelly Stadium. And they would, we'd give away tickets like, like anything, and then they would take the ticket home to their parents and say, take me to that game, and whether the parents liked it or not. And then all of a sudden, they became fans, and then we were getting 25,000, 30,000 people at Skelly Stadium. That was just, it was a great environment. That's great. Were, were these free clinics you give to the kids? Yeah, yeah. and free tickets. You know, the, anybody called us up and said, we'd like to do a clinic, we had players would show up. And, and that, and when I signed the players, I would tell them part of the deal is you have to come out and promote the sport. Well, why wouldn't you want to go out there and kick a ball with a bunch of kids and have fun? I mean, that's a job. It's not a too bad a job to have, you know? Yeah. So what was it like? To, uh, what was the biggest difference between you being a player versus a manager or coach? Uh, hey, what? It's a lot more fun being a player because you're just responsible for yourself. You know, I know we're all team players. You hear everybody play for the team and all that. You go out there to play the best you can. If you don't play good, then you're responsible. If you play good, you get the credit. So it's all about you as a player. You, you just want to play. And then hopefully the other players think the same way. And if everybody's thinking the same way, then we're going to play well, play together. As a coach, you're responsible for 18 players. And if there's only 11 players on the team, the seven people pissed off at you somewhere along the line. And they all like to think. So as a coach, any I, I can't talk about other sports, but it's a really tough job. You know, and it's, and it's easy to be criticized. Well, why doesn't he do this? Or why doesn't he do that? And if you were to turn around and say to your assistant, well, you, I remember a couple of things. I, my assistant was Alan Woodward, which was a great guy. Alan Woodward uh, played for Sheffield United in England. The big superstar in England. Great player, great guy. Well, he's my assistant coach. And he, him and I used to laugh. He said, Charlie, why don't you play that guy? I said, well, why don't you pick the team? And he go, well, well, wait, wait a minute. No, I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. All of a sudden, when you tell an assistant coach or you to go to a player and say, okay, big shot, you go ahead and pick the team today. Well, it becomes a whole different, whole different story. So, uh, a lot of responsibility for any head coach, any any sport. Uh, it's, it's a tough job to please. You can't please everybody. It's impossible. So you just have to hopefully win games, and that pleases the owner. Yeah, it's a lot more weight on your shoulders, putting the whole 
11 players versus just, oh, play that one guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you, you live on the edge a little bit as well. The head coaches are only as good as the results. That's the, that's the bottom line. You're only if you're not going to win, you're going to get fired, and that's just the just the way of life, you know. And you know that going into it, and it's up to you to pick the best players that will keep you winning games. But not everybody can win a game because if everybody was winning, then who would be losing? You know what I mean? There's going to be a winner and loser in every game, so uh, you just hope you can win a lot more games than than you lose. And the first year as a head coach, we uh, we were I think we were something like uh, thirteen and. 13 and 10 or something like that. And we made the playoffs. So, and we were, and that, that year too, we played the New York Cosmos at Skelly Stadium and beat them 2-1 at Skelly Stadium with Beckenborough was playing, Canaglia was playing, Bocacevic was playing, all the, Carlos Alberto was playing. But, so that was one of the big highlights of my life. We beat New York in Tulsa and Billy, Billy Caskey scored the winning goal. We made it 2-1. Victor said he'd assisted on that, but I don't know if I believe him, but I've done went back and checked. Victor tells everybody he assisted on that goal, so I may as well give him the credit. Sounds good. Sounds good. And, uh, so how'd you leave the Roughnecks and get into college? To well, ask you. I, I used one of the things that people do in Scotland and England a lot and probably in Brazil and all over the world. If you're a popular player, everybody built, opens up a bar and let the crowd come and meet you in the bar. Well, in Oklahoma, you can't have a bar without a restaurant at that time. So I opened up a restaurant. I had a couple of guys who wanted to sponsor me, and I used my name, and we opened up the restaurant, Charlie Mitchell's Restaurant and Pub. It was successful for 10 years, and we had a great run at it. But just like everything else uh, in, in Oklahoma, the franchises come in. Where, when I was in the restaurant business, there was no franchises. So the franchises came in. So the restaurant wasn't doing so good after a while. And I got an opportunity to go coach in college, back to my passion. And uh, I got an opportunity to go with Gil Cloud, was a, a flight director at Northeastern State University. And he said, why don't you come and coach? And I, I jumped on it right away. And probably one of the most fun things I ever did. I remember when I played for you, the biggest thing that I remember that I got better as a player was more just awareness and knowing where everyone was on the field and the quick one-two passes. Yeah, I, I was big on that. I didn't want players to, to hang on the ball for a long time. The ball's supposed to be moving all the time. So if you could do it with two touch, do it with two touch. If you had to take that third touch, go ahead and take that third touch. But if you keep that ball moving, the ball moves a lot faster than players. So if you can keep the ball moving, the other team's going to have to adjust themselves all the time to, to move around. So, and I, and I learned that from other coaches. You know, I, everything I, I did as a coach, I learned from Bogle Singer, from Keith Daddy, from Bill Folk, and all the people. I, and that was stuff that I just took and copycatted. Because as, as a player, what you can remember is the things that when I was a player that coaches made us do it, I that enjoyed. That's what I wanted to do as a coach. I did all the drills that I enjoyed as a player. And, and I was a big, big proponent uh, of all the practice should be done with the ball. You can sprint with a ball. You can do – if you remember, Brandon, we did a lot of stuff with the ball. We didn't do a lot of running around the track and stuff like that. We can get players fit by just chasing that ball and doing doggies and stuff like that. Yes. Um, what would you do to help your players increase their confidence? 
Well, I tell you what, there's so many different players. There's the players who've got the confidence in the first place and, and they can be a little overconfident. And there's the players with no confidence, but they're good. So you've got to instill confidence in the players that have got no confidence. You've got to tell them that you're doing a good job. You know, it's a fallacy when people say, yeah, you've got to be tough and beyond everybody's ass all the time. That's not true. You've got to evaluate your players. There's players who have no confidence and need to be built up. And there's players you just got to get in their face and say, you're full of crap right now. You better just get your game together. But you've got to find out who, what player can take it. Because if you take a player with no confidence and you get in his face, he's going to be, he's going to be, he doesn't want the ball. And in and, and soccer, I wanted to put, apart from the goalkeeper, when that ball got on the field, I wanted everybody who wanted the ball. I want players who want the ball all the time. There's only one ball, so you can't give it to everybody. But I wanted players demanding the ball. That shows their confidence. If a player goes and hides and doesn't want the ball, then you have to build his confidence or he's not going to play. It's, and you have to look at each individual as a and don't just treat them all the same way. So it's, a, uh, it's not one size fits all. It's very individualized. Yes, correct. You know, and, and as a coach, you're a little bit of a, you gotta, you gotta be a, play mind games as well. You have to make sure you know how you're talking and how to, how to motivate them. And then how do, how do you motivate the team? How do you get the team motivated to play? How do you get them pumped up? And I used to say to the players, and I don't know if you recall this, if I've got to get you motivated, I'll pick the wrong players. I want the players to come in that dressing room and basically get me motivated by being excited in the dressing room, looking forward to the game. I used to have a couple of little tricks that when, when during the warm-up, I would never allow our players to look at the other team warming up. I wanted us to be so, so in control and so organized. I wanted the other team looking at us and going, oh, shit, look at them. They're all, look, at, look how organized they are. Why, why, why are we not like that? Just a little mind game. It doesn't win you any games. It doesn't give you a goal or nothing, but it just gets you pumped up. And the players used to like that. I used to say, don't you be looking at the other team. Look, let's look organized and make sure they're looking at us. So that was one of my little, little traits. I like to do, you know. What were some other tricks you had? I, I was big in just making sure that keep the ball moving. And I was big in when we got a free kick, you know, don't stand there and admire it. If it was an hour half of the field, defensive half of the field, take a quick one. If it's on the offensive half of the field, then you can line it up and take a shot at goal. But if, it, if the ball is dead, don't be standing there. Stop the ball and go because normally the other team's walking back with a back to the ball and stuff like that. So I was always big in keeping that ball moving. Don't take any more touches than you have to. And uh, just be, a, be, be aggressive. And win every ball first. If you could win the ball first, then you've, you've made it against your opponent. Then you've really you're dictating. So attack the ball first. You're not going to win every ball. You're not going to win every tackle. But be there and get a piece of the player. If you didn't get the ball, get a little piece of the player. What about um, sprinkling in fun to your practices and trainings? Did you have any tricks for making sure things stayed fun besides what you mentioned, which was keeping the ball in practice? We did a lot. Of, we used to do a lot of uh, one or two touch and put two players in the middle, and they had to get the ball, and if you keep the ball away from them, if they got more than 10 touches without they getting the ball, they had to do 10 push-ups. You know, 
when you're in the circle, then they would come out, you send somebody else. So every time that you keep the ball away from the guys for more than 10 times, everybody was laughing because we, we all wanted the guys in the middle to do the push-up. So this, that, and that just gives team camaraderie. Now, all of a sudden, if, if they intercepted the ball before it got to 10, then the other buddy on the outside had to do 10 push-ups. So it was like, and then when the guy, and you like this, the guy who did give up the ball, everybody's all mad at him for giving up the ball because now, you know, everybody's good. So what it does is it's a team effort. If one guy screws up, then everybody has to do the push-ups. Just different stuff like that. Uh, the other one I used to do, and I don't know if you could call this, uh, at the end of a practice, we'd line everybody up on the 18-yard line. And if you, if you could chip the ball and hit the crossbar, then you could go take a shower. So if you didn't chip the ball and hit the crossbar, you had to stay out. I know, and you see some guys chipping and going away for a shower. But the funny thing is that the other guys didn't run into shower. They would stand back and just watch everybody else and laugh. And there's always one guy who's going to be left chipping till for about 10 or 15 minutes to end up getting around the crossbar. And, and I used to do stuff like, let me take one, and I would hit it on the crossbar. Say, okay, you can go. So it was it's just good camaraderie. I, I had a lot of fun with the with the guys' team. They, we won a lot of games, and we were competitive. It was a, it was fun with the guys. I don't didn't have any problems with any of the players. And I had some good players, and you, you can recall. Yeah, that was, my era was like Stewie. We had Bradders, uh, some of the Jamaicans. Uh, right. Uh, oh, what was his name? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, a couple of English guys. It was Stewie, and it was the other his buddy. I'm trying to think who it was. And then uh, was Austin Greenhall there? Juby. Yeah. Um, Austin was there. John Michaels. John Michaels and Austin. Remember Austin played up front. John Michael. Austin came from Florida. John Michael was a great little player. He played out wide. You know, we we had a good bunch of players. You know, it was a it was a good experience. And we had fun. I hope you recall we had fun as well. We did. We did. I could be tough, but I didn't have to be because. You know, you were dealing with young men who were becoming adolescents. And the only thing I used to worry about was we went on the away trips because I let some of the older players have a beer and the younger players couldn't. That, that, that's where man management came in. And you had to be sensible and make sure because it was college and you're responsible for people's, people's sons. And that was a responsibility. At a professional level, I didn't feel that responsibility. If somebody wanted to go over a beer, that was their choice, and they, you know, they had to live with it. But as a college coach, you had to make sure that you followed the rules, make sure they followed the rules, because they were adolescents. You know, they weren't men yet. So you had a little bit of extra responsibility. Oh yes, I mean, it, it was, it was, you had to make sure that they followed the rules, and you know, we're all 17, 18, and 19, so they, they didn't, you know couple of times. I remember one, one night that uh, this is before you came to but I had a couple of players from Holland, Xander and, and Danny. And they were they were really good players, but one night somebody told me they were out at a bar when I had put a curfew on. So I thought I went to the bar to find them and they weren't there. And it was some of the tennis players were there and he goes, Oh coach, they never came in here. And all of a sudden next day I went to practice, he goes, I heard you were looking for us last night, and I goes, "Yes, I was." And you better be happy. I think. Well, the tennis players told us you were coming, so we all went home. So I said, "Well, that's a good." 
Because you know, cause if you remember, the tennis players were mostly Spanish guys, and they were, uh, they were they, the soccer players and the tennis players got along great, so they were covering each other's ass. Yeah, you got to be more. You had to be more stealthy. <laughs> yeah. As a coach, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. So if you're going to do something, you better make sure the coach doesn't find out about it. What were some of your tricks or tactics you had to, to build leaders within your team? Well, actually, you know, that, that, comes, that comes from them as well. Like, I, I always looked at people that easily, you could always tell in the dressing room who looked up to who and who can I, was a, was a, the talker or who was a, the guy who was help making decisions for people or who was the leader. And that's the guy that obviously you want to captain the team. But the same thing is you have to bring him in as an individual and say, hey, you're an asset to me. I need you to be that asset. So take on the responsibility I give you. And, and when, they, when you win him over, he wins everybody else over. Because it's, in, in the college level, the, the other players listened to the captain before they actually listened to the coach because he was an extension of the head coach. So you had to make sure you picked a captain that was an extension of you and doesn't make you look bad or go do things that, that you wouldn't appreciate. So I, I always look for the guy who they actually picked themselves. Does that make sense to you, Brandon? They, they, I go up there and say, I like Brandon. I'm going to make him captain. I looked around to see who, who they followed who was a role model to them. And it was normally a senior. You know, it was normally somebody that had played a couple of years for the team and knew what was going on. So when the, the freshmen came in or the sophomores came in, they knew that the, don't worry about you better not piss him off, the captain, because he'll, he'll jump all over your, your A. And, and it made my job easier. So I gave them responsibility to, to do, to take, take care of the dress, what I call take care of the dressing room. What about goal setting? Would you write out goals for yourself, both as a player and then as a manager? Um, would you write them down or would you just have them in your head? Tell me about that. I would set up goals at the beginning of the, uh, at the, beginning of the year. I would realistically look at the schedule and I would look at every team we're going to play against, home or away, and I'd write a result down there, what I thought would be a realistic result, and then see if, I could, if we could follow that. And, and I was out of, a, out of 20 games. If we didn't win 15, I'd be disappointed. That would be my goal. 75% of the season, if you pick the right players, there's going to be games that you should win and you lose. And there's going to be games that you should maybe lose, you should win. And we had a couple of good, you know, there were some good teams in that league at that time. So uh, we can win every game. But the same thing is that, that we're, we're going to be in every game. And I always wanted to win every game at home. Uh, I don't know what it is about people being at home. Well, number one, you don't have to stay in a hotel room. You don't have to eat strange food. So you should feel more comfortable playing on your home field. So I wanted to win every home game. And and, I, and the other thing is, I was big in getting the players in good shape. I wanted them to feel that they could run longer and run more than the other team. And we, we not running around the track, it was just worked on. If you can recall, we used to do a thing called doggies. You run 10, come back 10, run 20, come back 20. And, and, and you don't kill the player, but it's great for stamina because nobody runs the whole 90 minutes in a soccer game. People say you run for 90 minutes. You don't run for 90 minutes. You run periodically. But there's times you're standing. 
So that's the way you should try and practice like that. Make a hard run, then take a break. Then hard run and take a break. But most of the stuff I like doing with the ball, shooting drills, defensive drills with the ball. It was at the, it's all about having control of the ball, having the ball do the work for you. One of my theories was let the ball do the work because the ball goes moves faster than the player. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Did you have any superstitions or rituals? No, really. No, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. Uh, I, I try not to believe in that. You know, if we had a bad, if we had, had a bad game, or as a player, if I had a bad game, I'd like to think my next game was going to be a good one. But that, I'm not really into that. It's up to. I'm big in. You should know. Believe in yourself. Be be, uh, be aggressive, and go for it. Don't think. Don't over overthink it. Don't don't second guess yourself. Just go out there and make it happen. And every game I played in, or every game we coached, there was going to be mistakes made. And that was one of the things I used to say to the players. If you make a mistake, who cares? Just don't make two. Go ahead and just come back and recover. Because most people, when you make a mistake, you think everybody sees it. They really don't. They're, just go back and cover up for the mistake you made and try not to make two in a row. Because we're all going to make mistakes. I'll make a mistake today, wherever my lifestyle today, I'm going to make a mistake somewhere along the line. But if nobody knows about it, I'm not going to tell them. So we're just going to just keep moving on. I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, a lot of players, they'll make a mistake in the middle of the game and it'll ruin the entire rest of their game. Right. And that's a good point. And, and I know you you watch games like I do. I watch the, you know, the, the English Premier League as much as I can. Cause I, I really enjoy watching that. I like watching the Bundesliga. But I'll tell you what, a lot of players will make a bad pass and they don't give a crap. And, and it's happening more and more. If you watch the modern-day soccer players, They'll take a shot from 20 yards that goes over the bar and they walk back smiling. Well, that was never done in my day. If you hit a ball and you hit it over the bar, you're like, oh, that morning growing. Not anymore. These players take it's a whole different game. They take a chance and it doesn't work. No big deal. You know what I mean? Because they know that the next thing they might hit it from 20 yards and go up in the top corner. So, uh, but that's a modern player uh, who's, uh, who's got confidence in himself. And if they make a mistake, they don't care. The coach is not jumping all over the place for making a mistake. I mean, it's just it's, it's part of life uh, on the field and it's part of the life off the field. What's one thing that you know now that you wish you could have told your 18-year-old self soccer player to be better? That's a great question. I think I think I would have probably gone in their head a little more than I did. I, I would have probably brought more people into the dress, into the, the office, and gave advice how to handle themselves on the field or how they should play on the field. Uh, I, I wish I'd done more one-on-one -on -one with some players where I didn't do enough of that. I, I kind of depended on the captain of the team, kind of passing it on to him. Uh, and I would give people advice in, in the dressing room in front of everybody. I wish I'd done a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. I was scared to show favoritism uh, because, you know, what? all oh, the coach likes him better than me. I didn't need that, but I should have done some more, uh, brought people in and had a discussion and did a little more blackboard on, on, the, on the blackboard behind my office to show what, how they should have made some better runs or how they should make better decisions. Uh, I didn't, get, I didn't I'd spend enough time in that.
And that's that's towards your coaching side. What about towards your your as a player? What would you tell your player self? Say that again, Brandon. Sorry. Um, so what you just said was that was kind of like you as a manager, as a coach, what you would have done differently. What about as a player during your playing career? What's one well, thing you could t- tell your old self as a player? Yeah, well, this is easy. I wish I'd known as a player what I knew as a coach. I'd have, I'd have passed the ball quicker. I'd have, I'd have made better better decisions on the field. Uh, I would have done a lot, I held the ball in different areas where I, before I was getting rid of the ball quickly because I didn't want to make a mistake. I I was so busy trying not to make a mistake as a player that I should have had more confidence in myself. But I played with some good players and I was trying not to make a mistake. Uh, if I was to do it all over again, I'd have been a lot more confident on the ball and did things I knew I could do. But I never ever tried it because I I. I was around some really quality players, and uh, and I just didn't want to look bad. So I took the easy way out, made an easy pass when I could have done some other stuff. Great answer, great answer. And uh, last but not least, what advice would you give college players now who are with this coronavirus thing going on, who are stuck at home and trying to stick to some sort of workout schedule, but, I mean, not – being on the field with other players, it's boring and monotonous. What advice would you tell them to kind of like keep their spirits up? Uh, if they've got the opportunity to watch some old games on the television, you can learn a lot from watching other players play, and especially if you watch like the Bundesliga or the, the Spanish League or the English Premier League. Uh, that be That's a good – but as, as individuals and – Keep yourself in shape. There's a lot of things you can do. You can do bench pressing. You can make do exercises around the living room. You can keep yourself. You know, you've got to keep these muscles stretched all the time, so that when it does come time to play, you're not going to pull a muscle. So they should be stretching continuously, and they all know how to do that nowadays. They all know how to how it's done by the the trainer. Show them how to do it. So they should be doing stretches. You know, calves, thighs, hamstrings. All the up, all the lower part of the body. So when it does come time to run again and do some different stuff with the ball, the muscles not going to be tight. So I would be very surprised if, if not every professional or good college players not out there stretching. And and you can stretch anywhere. You can stretch in a hallway. You can stretch anywhere. But especially on the lower part of the body nowadays, it's getting really, 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 really in the, the, the weight room. A lot of players are doing upper upper body weights. I was never into that because we were told that, that you don't want to be, get too muscular in the upper part of your body. It slows you down. I don't know if I agree with that or not anymore, but the modern day player and the good college players or anybody, they know what it's like in the training room. If you can, if you can make up your own little training exercise in your bedroom or in, in the hallway or in the living room, go ahead and do it. But most importantly, keep stretching, keep your muscles stretched so that when it does take to go up there and run and open up a little bit, your muscles not going to get pulled or, or ting on you and all of a sudden it puts you out for a couple of weeks. Great advice. Great advice. Charlie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been great reconnecting with you. Um, I've loved hearing your stories. And uh, I think we can agree that we all owe your success to Robert Redford saying good luck on the okay. elevator that day. 
I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there, but it just, it's just great how the soccer can take you in every direction and make you, put you in, in, in positions that you would never ever imagine. So my, I've been very, very fortunate in my soccer career, my coaching career as far as a professional in college. It's been a great experience, and uh, I'm just happy that you gave me the opportunity to tell some people the, some of the, the background, the stories that people probably didn't know about. That's great. Thank you. All right. Good luck to you. Great seeing you, and uh, take care of yourself and take good health. All right. You too. Cheers. Cheers.